Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Barry Alfonso to discuss his book, A Voice of the Warm, The Life of Rod McCune. A look at the incredibly popular poet-songwriter who has most often been dismissed by critics as a purveyor of sentimental kitsch. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Barry Alfonso, author of A Voice of the Warm, the life of Rod McEwen. Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Nathan. And so Rod McEwen is not somebody who has a whole lot of cultural currency at the moment in 2021. But for a minute there, from, say, 67 to 75, he was absolutely ginormous. Can you tell our audience how big Rod McEwen was and what his accomplishments were? Rod McEwen's popularity and his sales of books and records is was so big, it's hard to even get your mind around it, especially because, as you said, uh, so little of it is still in print. And there's reasons for that, which I'll get into later. But uh, at one point, he was the biggest selling poet in history. Uh, that's in, in part because um, they weren't keeping records of, of uh, William Shakespeare going back a certain way in terms of sales. But in terms of book sales, uh, his books of poems uh, accounted for 4% of his publisher's entire uh, catalog. Uh, he was on the bestseller list. Books of poetry did not get on bestseller lists. His records sold in the millions. Um, artists like Frank Sinatra and Dusty Springfield and Nina Simone and Johnny Cash were doing his songs. Um, 
he was everywhere on television. Uh, he was in movies. Um, he did game shows on TV. Um, chances are uh, that uh, for a younger person listening, your parents or some of their friends probably had a Rod McEwen album somewhere in their catalog, in their collection, or uh, one of his books tacked away on a on a bookshelf. He went back about 45, 50 years. Uh, he was big enough that if he was a punchline, he was a joke. Uh, he was unavoidable, basically. And he was also the target of just some vicious critical attacks. Yes, yes. Particularly by people in academia, people that considered themselves the guardians of good taste and good poetry. Because his poetry was so direct and because he came out of a songwriter and a uh, popular culture background, he didn't write the kind of poetry that they thought was elevating for literature. And so they, they thought of him as like destroying uh, Western culture practically. They, they One critic said his work was less than trash. Uh, and, and there was the, the joke that uh, the talk show host Dick Cavett made, which was that Rod McEwen, Mard McEwen, was the most understood poet in history, uh, which was considered an insult, because if you could understand it, it probably wasn't good poetry. Yeah, and that's a pretty sweet put-down line by Cavett, but it's not really yeah. fair entirely um, to McEwen, because it was also an attack on McEwen's audience, wasn't it? That's true. Uh, it, it, it was uh, said that uh, Rod McEwen's readers were so dumb that they had to sort of uh, lip read or, or, or say the words out loud of the poems as they listened to them, and that uh, uh, these were poems that uh, you, you uh, had sex by. You know, like they were like a manual uh, as opposed to literature that would fill you with with inspiration. So you were you were dumb and you were, um, you know, uh, just not cool or not hip if you liked Rod McEwen, which, by the way, wasn't true uh, for many people. But even if it was, uh, it, it really showed a very condescending attitude, I think, towards the uh, the public that got so much of out of him. Yeah. And he was. One of the harbingers of a new zeitgeist, he was a big voice for the sexual revolution and for the environmental revolution. I think Earth Day owes a lot to the popularity of Rod McEwen and his uh, poetry and approach. And I definitely th think the sexual revolution reached the suburbs in large part. Uh, Rod McEwen was the herald of all the wife swapping and hot tub action that was about to happen in that era. Well, there, there's definitely some of that. I mean, he... Um... You know his own past. He was he was sexually fluid. He had worked as a hustler for a while. Um, he uh, didn't set boundaries around himself, and he uh, didn't expect necessarily a long-term commitment to come with uh, moments of love and passion. And uh, back in the '60s, you didn't have to be a hippie. You didn't have to be a, a tune-in, turn-on, drop-out person to want something more in your life uh, in terms of uh, your, your love life or the, your way of showing uh, physical, physical expression. And Rod spoke to people like that, as well as to long-haired young people, too. Those were some of his readers, but also the archetypal people in the suburbs. They, they bought his books uh, by the millions, actually. And the thing that I found most interesting about reading your book and researching McEwen is that he was a real pioneer of personal branding, direct mm -hmm. marketing, and 
you know, Jay-Z's whole career kind of, uh, Rod McEwen sort of presages that. He was an entrepreneur. He tended to own his own stuff. He, even when he made deals with the record labels, there was one deal he cut where he actually, rather than getting royalties or an advance, got rights to older recordings that had been on the label that he then sold on his direct uh, mail record label. That's right. He knew his audience and he knew that people would like to get these uh, unavailable soundtrack albums and albums by older artists. Um, that's right. And uh, the Jay-Z analogy is is very on the mark because he wanted to sell himself, not just his music, not just his books, but his personality and his personal tastes. And his fans felt closer to him if they could uh, buy his products when I mean, he was selling uh, clothing. He was selling uh, calendars. He was selling date books. He was selling greeting cards. He was selling all kinds of things that uh, people who wanted a little bit more of Rod McEwen in their life could pick up. He was like a lifestyle a promoter. And, and so many artists now, that's what they are as well as recording artists. And he was 45, 50 years before the times with that. And let's go ahead, ahead of and the hear time, yeah, go ahead and hear our first song snippet. This is the Kingston Trio doing a song called Seasons in the Sun that Rod translated Jacques Brel's French song into English. And the Kingston Trio cut it in the early 60s. Later in the 70s, Terry Jacks cuts it in 1974, I think, and had a number one hit with it. So this is the Kingston Trio doing Rod McEwen's Seasons in the Sun. Skinned our hearts and skinned our knees. I do a meal, it's hard to die. When all the birds are singing in the sky Now that the spring is in the air Pretty girls are everywhere Think of me and I'll be there We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun But the hills we would climb were just seasons out of time Now do Papa please pray for me I was the black sheep of the family. You tried to teach me right. And that was the Kingston Trio doing Seasons in the Sun. A song that's kind of infamous with rock critics that was, you know, one of the most hated and most popular songs of the early 70s. But the thing I thought was fascinating was this alliance with Brel, who is a French singer, Belgian singer, and you know, Scott Walker was an American who became a big pop star in Britain and then went on to do a number of Jacques Brel songs in English, some of them with Rod McEwen's lyrics. And Scott Walker is one of the most critically lionized uh, figures of the 1960s by people in Gen X and the millennial generation. And I just think it's so funny that Rod McEwen is this total critical pariah. Scott Walker is this total critical darling. And yet they meet at this uh, convection point of Jacques Brel. And they had the same manager for a short period of time, too, uh, when Scott Walker was just beginning his career and uh, he was uh, not part of the Walker brothers. Uh, so, yes, it, it is strange, the borderline between what's considered sort of hip and uh, adventuresome and what's considered, you know, outré and just unacceptable can be a very fine one. But Rod really worshipped uh, Jacques Brel. He would have liked to have been Jacques Brel in many ways and uh, translated and adapted and, and uh, wrote rather different lyrics to what, uh, what Brel gave him. And Brel at times wrote to Rod's lyrics too. So their, their collaboration worked both ways. 
And also this, the fact that the Kingston trio had covered this song, I didn't realize really where Rod McEwen came from. I knew he was sort of vaguely beatnik adjacent, that he had done performances in some of the same coffee shops and elsewhere in San Francisco that Kerouac and Ferlinghetti and others had done readings in. But I didn't really realize how intricately involved he was with the folk pop movement of the early 60s. In fact, he had a total partnership with Glenn Yarbrough of the Limelighters for a while. Yes, in fact, he uh, lived in uh, in Glenn's pool house for a bit when uh, when he was uh, not making a lot of money and uh, wanted to uh, rev up his career. He lived with his partner um, in the uh, the back of uh, Glenn's house, and they had a very close relationship. Uh, they had something of a falling out over money later, which which happens in the in show business, but. Glenn recorded a ton of Rod stuff and uh, most importantly did an album called The Lonely Things, which was all Rod McEwen material and really was a decisive uh, turning point in Rod's career. And part of that was because there was a book mentioned in the liner notes, if I've got the right album, that Mm -hmm. Rod claimed to have written that wasn't actually finished yet when the album came out. Right, right. It was the the book was mostly things that Rod had written previously, but never gathered together. And uh, yeah, he said on the back of the album cover uh, that these lyrics come from a book called uh, Stanion Street and Other Sorrows. And if you want it, write to this address. But at the time that this was printed on the album cover, the back cover, the book didn't exist yet. So he put it together and started selling it himself. And that was really the beginning of Rod's phenomenally successful career as a, uh, as a, as an author. Yeah. And a direct marketer as well. That was the part that really fascinated yeah. me. And also the whole fake it till you make it aspect of this and Rod, you know, you right up front in the forward, you, you say, you know, it's very difficult to write a biography of this man because he's not a reliable narrator. He even had some children he claimed to have in France that as far as you can tell, never actually existed. It's very strange. And to tell you the truth, some of the people that reviewed my book could not get the past get past the fact that Rod told so many untruths. And they were just prepared to throw out anything good about Rod because he made up so much stuff. But it's it's hard to know exactly why he did this. Probably the story with the children was something that um, gay men did back in those days to try to make themselves seem uh, acceptable. And and, uh, if not straight, then at least, you know, you didn't go there, you didn't ask questions. But he had to maintain the fiction that he had these children until late in his life where he basically said, I don't want to talk about them anymore. But there is absolutely no corroborating evidence that uh, these two children ever existed. And when Rod died, no one came forth to claim his estate. So I think that it's extremely unlikely, extremely unlikely that he really did have a a son and a daughter, as he claimed. And this... The way that many critics dismissed Rod because of his habit of fabulating stories, there was also an undercurrent in the criticism of his work in the 60s and 70s that he was a cynic, that he didn't believe the stuff he was preaching, that he was just cashing in. But that doesn't seem to be the case, and it doesn't seem to be the case that he was a bad person, or at least he didn't leave a wake of ruined relationships and hurt people behind him. People seem to care about Rod McEwen and he seemed to care about them. 
I think that's true. Uh, the people that I spoke to, and I spoke to just about everybody I, I could find okay. who knew Rod going back Steph. to um, to the uh, to the early '60s or, or even into the '50s, they remembered him very fondly, and uh, this into late late as late in life as well. So. Yes, he did. I don't think he was a cynic. I think that he understood how to market what he did very astutely. But I think he genuinely thought that what he had to offer people was good for them, was helpful, was positive, And he made himself very available to his fans. He would sit for hours at concerts, talking with people, signing books and albums. And uh, he would uh, correspond with people, too. People would just write to him, ordinary fans, and he would write back sometimes for years. So that's not your, you know, your snarky, uh, cynical showbiz guy working there. There's something genuine there, I think. And let's step back and get into his background, because he's born in the 1930s at the depths of the Depression, uh, a child of a single mother who possibly met his father at one of these uh, dance marathon type events or, or higher dance things. It makes me think of that movie, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Mm-hmm. And struggled, you know, as as ch- children of single mothers did in those days. But he's also kind of connected to the Old West in a way and had a lot of experiences that it struck me that William S. Burroughs, the beatnik author, would have killed to have had, that, that Rod McEwen actually was out there working on ranches and taking comforts and friendly cowboys and things like that at a very early age. Well, that's what he wrote about. And from what I researched, it was quite possible uh, that he did live that way. And so I chose to present it pretty much as the way that he he said it. But yes, he grew up uh, and grew into his teens as part of a kind of male culture of cowboys and uh, rodeo riders and loggers. Uh, kind of drifting around. Uh, at one point, uh, he gets apprehended by the authorities and sent to reform school in Nevada. But uh, he lived seemingly a very free and loose existence well into his uh, late teenage years and uh, had the kind of relationships which uh, would not be uh, considered legal now. But he spoke very fondly, and he did not consider himself uh, exploited. I think he he considered himself lucky to survive because his home life was very rough and very uh, brutal. So this was a way that he could live and he could uh, express himself. And let's hear um, a song from possibly Rod McEwen's career, High Point, when Frank Sinatra did an entire album of Rod McEwen's songs. This is Frank Sinatra singing Rod McEwen's Love's Been Good to Me. Hiked a hundred highways Never found a home Still in all I'm happy The reason is you see Once in a while along the way Love's been good to me There was a girl in Denver and that was Frank Sinatra doing uh, Rod McEwen's Love's Been Good to Me from an entire album of Rod McEwen songs that Frank Sinatra did in the late 60s, which had to have been a career high point for Rod. But let's get back to Rod's uh, life, because I found it fascinating. He has this extremely brutal childhood. He's he's 
probably raped by a step-uncle, abused by a stepfather, uh, shunted from home to home. His mother and he traveled uh, throughout the Old West with various family members. And then, like you say, he has this, you know, free and easy uh, teen years where he's working on ranches and stuff. But then he gets to San Francisco and he gets a job at a theater and very quickly manages to get on a path towards show business success, first on the radio, then after some time in the army, then off to Hollywood. Explain a little bit of how that worked. And it's so staggering these days when opportunities are so limited. And basically, if you're not the child of Hollywood stars, you have no chance in getting breaking in. How did Rod McEwen break into show business? Well, that phrase uh, you use, fake it till you make it, really does fit Rod McEwen. He just had a tremendous amount of drive and chutzpah. He would put himself out there. Uh, he would present what he could do, and he would make up things that he had done to be able to get credibility if he didn't have the credentials right there. The station, the radio station he started off on as a teenager, a KROW, was known as a very experimental station in terms of what they program. And he was a teenager in high school at the time, and he came to them and said, I want to do a, a disc jockey show where I play records and I talk and I read my poetry. And they let him do it. And he was on the air for three and a half years. And he really developed his style that he used much later to sell millions of records as a teenage radio host out of Oakland, California in the late 40s and 50s. And this is the model of how he did everything after that. So he just went from one one opportunity to another. And if he didn't find an opportunity, he'd create one. He would crash the gate of a movie uh, studio, for instance, and just hang around until they gave him a part in a movie. That actually happened, apparently. So it was drive, it was luck, and it was just a certain kind of shamelessness also. He just would not – he would not be deterred. And there's a really fascinating side jaunt in, in his narrative at this point when he gets drafted into the Army, and he goes to the Army Information School. I guess they were attracted to his background in radio, and – as you say, quote, Rod tested out media manipulation techniques for fun and profit. Tell us a little bit about Rod McHugh and the spook. Well, Rod um, had a hand in writing radio broadcasts that were broadcast to North Korea. This was during the Korean War, where uh, he would write the script for a seductive-sounding woman uh, to read over the air and hopefully coax and seduce the North Korean troops to laying down their arms or defecting or not fighting very hard. Uh, you know, the, the, it was the same kind of romantic poetry that he would write for his own records, but in this case, it was beamed to uh, enemy soldiers to get them to uh, to not fight and to quit and to feel lonesome for their girlfriends at home. And he was he was very adept uh, adept at that. Uh, unfortunately, he did other things while he was in the military that lost him this particular gig. But uh, it's easy to imagine him doing it. And, and in fact, I've even heard recordings, interviews where he imitates uh, the sort of character he created for uh, these these war broadcasts. And you could see that he really knew how to get into people's heads. And I, I thought it was funny that the thing that got him uh, court-martialed and booted out of that particular group of the army was that he was singing at a club in Tokyo. And I got the vibe that it was potentially kind of an erotically charged performance that he was giving there at Maxim's in Tokyo. 
that's the way he presents it. Yes, that he he took off his shirt and he was he was singing rock and roll, which is interesting because at the time rock and roll would have been very very young, and uh, it's possible that he knew what it was and he was doing it. But but yeah, I mean he uh, he was working out his own style, and he was a he was a pretty uh, he he. He was kind of a hunky guy when he was young. He certainly presented himself that way, and there was a bit of this sort of James Dean, bad boy, rascally quality to him. And uh, you could see how the army would not be thrilled with him going out and playing the clubs and and portraying this sort of thing on stage. Yeah, and he clearly, I mean, obviously from the pictures, you can tell he was a very handsome young man. And he must have presented himself brilliantly because he gets about seven or eight record deals long before he has a taste of success. Um, mm-hmm. So he clearly knew how to sell himself, but he has this period where he's actually getting singing and speaking roles in Hollywood movies. He did a movie with Sal Mineo, um, and right. uh, and at one point the there was a rumor, a claim that he was receiving more fan mail than Rock Hudson, but it seems like it was possibly Rod and his manager writing a lot of that fan mail. Yes, and uh, I would believe that that was uh, that was the case. That was uh, that was told to me by somebody that, that claimed to have heard that from from the source. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, if Rod would, in, what, Rod would be successful and then he would try to enhance that success in any way he could. That was kind of his modus operandi. And he, his, you know, you talk about his claim that he was singing rock and roll in the early fifties, which you have to take with a grain of salt because he did a number of rock and also parodies of beatniks. He did an album um, called Beatsville that's very much sort of a tongue-in-cheek, not quite Maynard G. Krebs-style, you know, total wild over-the-top satire of beatniks, but it's in a where he's just right on the line of, is this guy legitimately a beatnik poet, or is he making fun of the whole scene? Yeah, it's both at the same time, because he he was part of the, the arts and poetry scene of uh, North Beach in San Francisco in the late 50s. He was never an authentic beat, and there were very few of them. Uh, And he was willing to use the term beatnik to exploit and to make fun of. But if you listen to this record, and it's it's been in print more than almost any other Rod McEwen album. Uh, you can tell he knows the kind of people he's making fun of. The, the caricature he draws is not off the mark. Uh, there's a couple of missteps there, but for the most part, he's making fun of people he knows. So, And there's some affection there, too. So it's a mixture of a kind of a homage and a parody at the same time, I think. And and he's a total hustler in every sense of the word. And around the same time, he's doing an album under a pseudonym called Songs Our Mummy Taught Us that is, um, reminds me of something like the Monster Mash, right? you know, where he's yeah. doing these sort of rock and roll parodies that are that are pop culture parodies as well. And then he goes to New York and has this period where he he works for CBS Television Workshop as a as a composer, writing the music for that. He gets another record deal this time with Decca Records, does an instrumental records for Coral. Uh, he's on Cap Records. He's on Epic Records, doing an album called In Search of Eros. So he's already sexy and 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 willing to walk that line of of you know what is acceptable at this very nascent sexual revolution that's going on in the late fifties. But the thing that he gets the most traction with is one of the craziest things he ever did. He did a song called Oliver Twist to try to ride the twist fad that Chubby Checker um, had succeeded so much with with Hank Ballard's song The Twist. 
And he actually made it to number 76 on Billboard and did an extended tour around the country. He played the Copacabana. He played the Peppermint West in Hollywood. And he wrecked his voice and gave himself that scratchy quality that kind of became his trademark later on. I know. It's it's an amazing odyssey. And uh, you would think that someone that's trying to build up their reputation as a sensitive poet wouldn't go and make this crass, jokey uh, twist record aimed at people significantly younger than himself. But but Rod would try anything, and uh, you know, to see see what works. And uh, yes, it, the voice that that you hear on the records is different before and after that tour. Although he could control it, his voice wasn't always as scratchy as uh, he made it out to be. But yeah, you, yeah I think that substantially that legendary uh, claim is true that he just screamed and sang from his throat rather than you know using his diaphragm the way you're supposed to he did it so much that he just he just damaged his vocal cords he says that and in fact uh, an old girlfriend of his says that he had to write notes for a while when he was recovering because he was just forbidden to use his voice to even talk for a bit wow and let's hear from our sponsors when we come back we'll talk about the rise of rod McEwen. so at this point rod McEwen has made a go of it in hollywood both as an actor and as a recording artist. He's made a go of it in New York as a as a TV music composer and a singer and as a, a pop star. But then he comes back to Hollywood and he finds himself in this new folk pop scene that the Kingston Trio had exploded in 1959, kind of picked up where the Weavers had left off in the early 50s before they were blacklisted. And, you know, by this point, Peter, Paul and Mary are enormous. Harry Belafonte is a big star. And he's playing at the Troubadour with people like Barry Maguire. Uh, I think some of the future birds are in the same scene. And this is uh, cuts an album called New Sounds and Folk Music on Horizon. And this is where he meets uh, Glenn Yarbrough and gets some songs placed with the Kingston Trio. Place Rod in that folk movement. Was this another scene where he was adjacent to it, kind of part of it, but not really of it, or did he blend right in? Uh, the the former. He he is he's of it, but he's just not quite part of it. I, I interviewed someone that was active during that time as well and said that Rod was not quite thought of as a legitimate folk singer, and his audience was different. Um, people from the suburbs, particularly younger women, would come into West Hollywood to go to the Troubadour and see him, and it was a different crowd than what um, Barry McGuire or Hoyt Axton or some of the other locals would attract. And that's typical of, of Rod in, in that he would be part of a – he would be around a scene. He would play the same stages as a scene, but he wouldn't be considered – part of the crowd. He wouldn't be part of the in crowd. A good a good analogy musically is is to think about the, the man that he co-wrote with a lot, Barry Maguire, who made the transition from being with the new Christy Minstrels, which was this very commercial folk group, to doing Eve of Destruction, a, a record that a lot of rock people remember quite well. Um, he, he was... Uh, a bridge between the folk and the rock world. And, and in sort of a similar way, Rod was a bridge between various pop worlds at that time. And the borders between folk music, pop music, rock music were not hard and fast, and you could jump, jump across them. And Rod was doing that at that time. 
And another reason he didn't quite blend in was that when the other folk singers would go to after hours clubs and trade songs, Rod tended to be more in sort of the homosexual underworld of that time when everybody was closeted, it was frequently illegal or uh, gay men were harassed for and gay women as well for trying to to meet people and and get some emotional comfort and sexual release. Rod's in this other world, Malou, as well. Yes, that's true. And uh, the folk crowd that he uh, had uh, association with, we're, we're aware of that. He was he was a loner. He was a self-proclaimed loner. And uh, he was part of uh, a, a culture that uh, was was technically illegal, was more than technically illegal, that you could be arrested for at the, at the whims of the authorities. So he had to be careful and he had to be wearing different masks and different disguises. And uh, as honest and open as Rod was, there was always that element about him, even when uh, it wasn't a crime to be gay. He never quite lost that sort of furtive quality. And so many of his poems and songs are about brief anonymous encounters, and frequently they're characterized as with women, but that's probably not the case. Probably not, no. Now, he was close to a number of women. He had uh, w- passionately platonic relationships with some women. I'm thinking of one woman in particular in New York. So uh, there was that element of his life. But yes, he he did not call himself gay and he refused to label himself. But uh, that was the, that was really the milieu that he inhabited, I would think. And his partner, Edward Habib, who he met uh, in that world, becomes a key part of Rod's success and and is in many ways almost his business manager. He functioned that way to some degree. It's hard to know exactly what Ed did because Rod claimed that he did do things that he didn't do, like that Rod, that he was writing a book about Rod. Ed, Ed was not writing a book about Rod. Uh, Ed was his photographer. That's questionable also. But he was involved with selling Rod's books, and uh, he did, I think, uh, give a certain practicality to some of Rod's more far-fetched dreams. So it was a partnership, and it was a partnership that lasted for many decades. And the, and the fact that this Stanyan Street book that, like we said, began as yet another one of Rod McEwen's sort of fantasies on the on the liner notes of a Glenn Yarrow album is quickly slapped together into reality, a self-published book that he and Edward are then selling out of the trunk of their car to bookstores and sell 60,000 copies with his total grassroots marketing effort. This is so far ahead of its time. It's um, And it was seen as crass and... Mm-hmm. You know, not authentic uh, at the time, you know, when all these, quote, authentic artists are working with these major corporations. And and it's fascinating to look back after the hip hop era and after selling out has lost its opprobrium because, you know, I think people have realized we're in a capitalist society and it's turtles all the way down. There's no way to avoid buying and selling. And McEwen really perfected this and then leverages it into an incredible deal with Random House that then ends up leveraging that to get this relationship with Frank Sinatra and and get Frank Sinatra to do a whole album. Tell us a little bit about that connection. Well, um, 
Bennett Cerf, who was uh, an executive at Random House, knew uh, Sinatra and thought putting the two of them together would be a, a good thing because don't forget that by the late 60s, Frank is not getting the kind of material uh, that he's used to. I mean, the, the sort of old school American songbook writers are either dead or in decline uh, in terms of their output. Uh, their style is old fashioned. And uh, Frank wants to be current. So he's doing Paul Simon songs. He's doing the Beatles songs. And some of them work better than others. Uh but Rod McEwen was an up-and-coming, fairly young uh, artist, a successful songwriter and, and author, uh, and yet he was sensitive and romantic, which is something that, that uh, Frank could relate to. And, and also he wrote from the perspective of being a loner, and that was something that uh, was part of Frank's persona, too. So uh, Bennett Cerf puts the two of them together, and... Uh, it works out, and uh, Rod puts together an entire album of material for Frank that's not only songs, but also recitations, kind of dramatic pieces. And uh, the while the record didn't sell a whole lot, it's amazing how well-remembered it is. And uh, I know people that are like hardcore rock people that are very fond of that album. And uh, while they never did another album together again, I, I think that the Sinatra-McEwen album really is a landmark of its time. It's definitely uh, something of the zeitgeist of that era. And let's hear another song snippet. And this was an episode I didn't expect to have a hard time picking material. I expected to have a hard time picking material, but it wasn't because I thought I would have too many things I wanted to put in, but I did. And I wanted to, to give us a, a sample of Rod McEwen singing. And so this is one off of his Christmas album. This is Rod McEwen singing, And to Each Season. And to each season Something is special Lilac, red rose, or the white willow Young men of fortune, old men forgotten Green buds renewing, the brown leaves dead and gone Spring in the lilacs And that was Rod McEwen singing And to Each Season off of his Christmas album. And, and one of the tracks I really wanted to, to get in there because one of his most commercially successful albums as a songwriter, although he didn't actually perform on it, was The Sea, which was a Warner Brothers album uh, by Anita Kerr with a string section. And it had spoken word reading Rod McEwen's words, although he had uh, a different album contract and he had an RCA contract and couldn't be on the Warner Brothers record. But this album went gold. And you know, Anita Kerr, uh, known best for the Anita Kerr singers who were staples on Nashville hits of the era, but she also was a big player in this um, elevator music sort of genre. And elevator music's the wrong term, but of records like Jackie Gleason and Montavani, Percy Faith, this was a big, easy listening, I guess, is the correct nomer for that mm -hmm. uh, genre. And, um, you know, people like to hear these mellow albums that they could put on in their in their pad on their hi-fi system and really relax with some mellow sounds and rod McEwen was perfect for that market 
Yeah, they were environmental records, and they were, again, ahead of their time. Uh, there were records that were sort of like that. There were um, radio shows that combined uh, spoken word pieces with environmental sounds and uh, kind of caressing, soothing music. But Rod and Anita really perfected this form, and the C led to a whole series of records, albums together with uh, environmental titles like The Earth, The Sky, uh, Return to the Sea. They they really worked this formula pretty hard. But when it worked, it was very uh, beguiling, and it was almost like stepping into a movie. It was like your own movie soundtrack to sort of meditate to or to cuddle up with someone and listen to. And uh, it was very popular in its day. Yeah, and it came out around the same time as his book, his first book for Random House, Listen to the Warm, which also came out with an album. And that thing was a monster. It sold millions of copies. And that's what made him the TV celebrity and the, quote, best-selling poet of all time. And you talk a little bit about how in 1967, before the critical backlash began against him, that he's really kind of in there that you would have had people who had a Rod McEwen album and book next to their Simon and Garfunkel album, next to their copy of uh, the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper. Tell us a little bit about how he fit into that zeitgeist of open-mindedness and exploration kind of before the politics got so harsh and, and the lines were drawn so starkly. There's a period where suburbanites and hippies aren't all that different, and a lot of them are listening to Rod McEwen. Well, they're, to some degree, they're looking for some of the same thing. They're looking for personal freedom. They're looking for a, a way to get out of the rat race and the everyday pressures of life. They're looking for a way to appreciate the small moments. They're looking for physical contact. They're looking for a, a lack of shame to hug and kiss someone or to be with them for a night. Um, this was something that uh, people over 30, over 40 uh, were feeling at the time, as well as their kids. Now, Rod McEwen and his fans didn't necessarily flaunt their freedom the way that hippies did. They didn't grow their hair real long. They didn't wear the same kind of clothes. They didn't uh, smoke dope, at least in public. Um, but some of the same sensibility was there. If you're talking about like 66, 67, um, the politics was different, although Rod later on spoke out against the Vietnam War, spoke out against uh, the Nixon Agnew regime. But it wasn't it wasn't aggressive. It was more like a quiet revolution that the McEwen fans and the McEwen readers and listeners were looking for. That's what he stood for to them. And later on, he became pretty vocally um, political, fighting for homosexual rights. He was a he was an outspoken uh, uh, rival of Anita Bryant, the infamous homophobe from Florida. So he, and and he was already openly sexually fluid at this point. Even though he's talking about women in a lot of his songs and poems, he's leaving that door open for interpretation. That he's open to loving anybody. What's kind of amazing is that he was doing interviews like in 71 and 72 where he basically said, I'm sexually fluid, and that didn't seem to hurt him at all. Um, on some of his records, he would avoid uh, giving a, a, a pronoun, a, you know, a he, she pronoun in his love songs so you could interpret it different ways. 
again, it's because he wasn't taking things on in your face. He was doing it more in sort of a gentle kind of way, uh, a way like this is how I live and take it or leave it, but I'm not storming the barricades. And he could get away with it, even with this massive popularity. His, you know, his decline in popularity later had nothing to do with his coming out, so to speak, because he never came out in the way that other people did. And yet people understood, I think many of his fans did, what he was really saying. And at the same period, he gets into film in a big way, writes soundtracks for a number of things, uh, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, where he wrote the song Gene, which was a big pop hit for Oliver at the time. And he partners with uh, Charles Schultz on a Peanuts Christmas special. And you draw some parallels between Schultz and Rod McEwen. Can you extend on that? Sure. Uh Charles Schultz reached a huge audience with very simple, very human cartoons that were uh, sympathetic to the underdog. I mean, if you think about Charlie Brown, his kite would catch, you know, in the trees. Uh, he would strike out in the ball games. He couldn't get the little redhead girl to pay attention to him. And that same kind of lonely, loner, uh, underdog sort of persona was what Rod McEwen uh, took on and what he sang about. And uh, there was just a lot of similarities there. And also, Peanuts was easy to understand. It was human. It was easy to understand. It gave you a quick reward for reading it. And that was what Rod's poems were like. And, and his music, too. I mean, you could just let it wash over you and you didn't have to probe very deeply. And yet it was true on a certain level. And that's what Peanuts was for a lot of people as well. And you can't get that big without people noticing, and not everybody's going to like your work no matter who you are. And McEwen in particular suffered a pretty vicious critical backlash. We alluded to that at the beginning, talked a little bit about it, but elaborate on the viciousness and scope of the critical backlash, and how did McEwen respond to it? There was one critic in particular named Carl Shapiro who was an academic and also a poet. He was the uh, the uh, poet laureate of the United States at one time. And he said, Rod McEwen's poetry was not even trash. And it was just, you know, the, uh, the, the, the dashed off musings of a singer, a crooner, as he called him. Interestingly enough, in the same piece where he goes on and on about how terrible Rod is, he also goes on about how bad the Beatles and the Beats were. He lumped them all together as dumbing down poetry. And this was picked up by other writers. There was a, a well-known journalist at the time, Nora Ephron, who later became famous for writing uh, rom-coms. But she wrote a piece called Mush for Esquire, where she talked about Rod and talked about Eric Siegel, who was the novelist who wrote Love Story, a hugely popular book in its time. And she basically said that they had they were just selling emptiness. They were just you know, exploiters who were who were dashing off these vacuous, uh, sickly sweet uh, poems and novels to cash in on on people's weakness, and this got a lot of currency. Rod initially kind of you know shrugged it off, but eventually it kind of got to him, and he would criticize and, and kind of strike back in his. His interviews and even in his poems, he makes a reference to Shapiro indirectly uh, about uh, him being a loser, as he called him. And uh, so it ticked him off after a while. It did get to him. 
And let's hear our last song snippet. This is uh, Aaron Freeman, better known as Gene Ween, uh, who did a, his first solo album, which is an album of all Rod McEwen songs. This is Beautiful Strangers by Aaron Freeman. Beautiful Strangers Who held me for a night And fell down in the darkness On pillows soft and white all the beautiful strangers All in the afternoon Who praised my flat little stomach And came back to my room And that was Aaron Freeman, a.k.a. Gene Ween, doing Rod McEwen's Beautiful Strangers. And I think uh, I was really delighted with that album and and it really i think captures gen x responding to rod McEwen and kind of honoring rod McEwen's legacy in a way that only gene ween could do somebody who's had his tongue in his cheek his entire career and the songs were put across very sincerely but with a bit of a wink as well um how do you think it honors McEwen's legacy I think that album is a great record. And from what I understand, um, uh, Gene Ween had gone through a tough time before he made that record. And he didn't know hardly anything about Rod McEwen when uh, Ben Vaughn got him involved with the project. And I spoke to Ben about that record. And he just took the song straight. He took them without any kind of irony, without any kind of history. And he found the emotional heart of them. So uh, I, I think he did a great job. And I I would not be surprised if other artists uh, rediscover Rod McEwen because I think that there are elements of what's popular now that are like what he did. There's a kind of whispery singer-songwriter pop that you can hear, and even someone like Billie Eilish that is very intimate and where the person is really opening up to you, and it's not so much the elegance of the words as the the pure sentiment, the pure emotion. I think there's going to be other people besides Freeman that are going to find Rod's work and, and record it in, in the future. And that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But let's talk about Rod, sort of the the final years of his mass success in the 70s and the rest of his life. He, um, like we said, Terry Jacks has a massive number one hit with Seasons in the Sun in 1974, sold six million copies of that. Rod's extremely uh, financially well off. He leaves Random House for Simon & Schuster for, you know, a big advance, big deal. Uh, for a while, Standion Records, his private owned mail order record company is the second biggest mail order record company in the world after Columbia Record Club. Um, and and he does uh, writes a memoir called Finding My Father, where he sort of tries to resolve some of these Oedipal issues that he's had his entire life. Tell us a little bit about that and his final years. Well, uh, a little bit about Finding My Father. Uh, subsequently to my writing this book, I found out more about that book. And I think in in my biography, I allude to the fact that uh, Rod doesn't completely uh, prove his case that the man that he identifies as his birth father was actually the right person. And that's probably the case. He, he hired a private detective to track down who his father was. And among the suspects, he picks somebody and says, that's my dad. But 
the case that that really was his father is a little bit uh, questionable. So in other words, Rod, Rod wrote a book about being a, uh, a a person born out of wedlock and trying to find his dad. And he was trying to help and and elevate people who uh, feel bad about this to to feel good about themselves and, and to and to look for their their birth parents but he himself probably did not find his dad even though he claims in the book that he does so from there his sales and his uh, output starts to uh, dim a little bit. He does write a very interesting musical called uh, The Black Eagle, which he never actually staged, but he did a soundtrack of, which is very dark and very different than what people think of Rod McEwen doing. It's uh, it's almost got sadomasochistic overtones to it. It's got a kind of a witchcraft theme to it. So he stays productive, but it starts to diminish. And he also has a very major battle with a clinical depression in the 1980s that he sort of overcomes, but it debilitates him. It holds him back a bit. And he also does a disco album that is yes. – has a remarkable cover on it. It's called Slide Easy In. And the the album cover has a big hairy man's arm dipping into a vat of Crisco Disco. So that's a, you know, it's, it's I've done a, a couple shows now where we've talked about some of the gay anthems and underground gay anthems of this era. So once again, he's sort of on the zeitgeist there with disco. How did that impact his public image and how was the album received? Well, that record was sold through his own record company. Uh, most of his fans probably never heard or saw that record. The record itself is not very racy. Um, there's, there isn't a song about uh, using Crisco for uh, other than baking purposes, even though the cover shows that. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a kind of a cult favorite, and it's a pretty uh, amazing picture. That's the arm and the fist of a gay porn star, by the way, that's you know, getting into uh, into the can. This came out around the time of the Anita Bryant uh controversy when he was fighting against Anita Bryant's anti-gay uh, um, campaign in Florida. So it has something to do with that, too. Yeah, it, it, clearly he's speaking to the times and 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 having some fun with it. It's it's uh, mm -hmm. it's just crazy. And so um, any final thoughts about Rod McEwen? Like one thing that I think is interesting is the you know somebody who's been critically savaged like this and yet had hits and had a lot of people who responded to their work how should we look back on rod McEwen? what in the end do you think is his legacy rod McEwen's whole life it seems to me was a uh, a quest to be seen as legitimate to be uh, taken for what he's worth and not to be shunted aside as a uh, illegitimate child or a poor kid that came from a horrible childhood or a man that uh, couldn't write sophisticated songs or sophisticated poems. And his sheer, uh, his sheer chutzpah, his sheer nerve is very, very impressive. And as well as his interesting balance between sincerity and really crass commercialism 
and the times that he's winking at you where he knows that he's being uh, being commercial, but yet you like him anyway. And his, and his willingness to just not be defeated, his, his ability to keep coming back. It's a great American story. It's, a, it's, it's one of the great American stories in show business, I think of. If, if anybody's ever seen the movie Zelig with Woody Allen, how Zelig – keeps coming into these different scenes as a shape-shifter. That was Rod McEwen. He could pop up anywhere. And that alone is fascinating about him. Absolutely is. And uh, my guest has been Barry Alfonso. The book is A Voice of the Warm, The Life of Rod McEwen. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Barry. Thank you so much, Nathan. It was fun. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes back Brooks Long for another installment of the David Ritz Book Club as they discuss the autobiography of Etta James. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.